0: Well, good morning to all of you here at Central Campus, and also those of you turning in, tuning in from uh, one of our regionals uh, at Airdrie, uh, Bridgeland, or the Crowford Theatres in Northwest Cal- Calgary, and also those of you who are tuning in online. As you heard, my, uh, my dad suffered a stroke, major stroke last night and um, was flown into Calgary Foothills Hospital from Medicine Hat around 2 o'clock uh, this morning. And uh, so we didn't receive much sleep uh, last night. And so uh, thank you for um, praying for my dad, for our family at this time, and also uh, for me that I might be able to stay focused as I share the message this morning. I'm sure that many of you would agree with me that uh, we live in an age of rage. We see it in our homes. We see it in our schools. We see it at work. And of course we see it on the way to work. Our schools, colleges and even quiet little communities like Newtown, Connecticut are increasingly becoming unsafe places as individuals who are often seething with anger become violent and act out everyone's worst nightmare. In North America alone, millions of children are abused every year, often as a result of uncontrolled anger. Every year, there are over a million reported domestic violence incidents between men and women. In Alberta, there are a staggering 200,000 adults who live with family violence. Right here in Calgary, police are called to respond to over 16,000 domestic violence-related complaints each year. Every day, we read or hear of numerous accounts of carnage created by uncontrolled anger. And the vast majority of these perpetrators aren't people who have a long history of violence or a long history of uh, problems or uh, breaking the law. No, most people are just like us. They are teachers, they are plumbers, doctors, executives who can't seem to get a handle on their anger. The fact is, every day in a neighborhood just... Like ours, a wife gets so angry at her husband that she says things that will hurt and wound him deeply, if not permanently. Every day in a home, just like ours, a father becomes so frustrated at his son's unacceptable behavior or attitude that he loses control, and instead of applying proper discipline, he physically and verbally abuses his son. Every day in streets just like ours, people use their cars as weapons in response to what they believe are boneheaded driving decisions on the part of others. Anger, animosity, and hatred seems to be commonplace and spreading throughout society, even to our children and our youth, as bullying is now a major problem. Now, we were never meant to live this way. Our world is broken. And a large part of it is is because of the pride and the selfishness of man. Jesus came to earth to establish and to invite us to be part of a new society, a new kingdom with a totally different mindset and a way of living than the kingdom or the society of this world. And in his Sermon on the Mount, which we have been studying together, Jesus gives us a picture of what his kingdom looks like. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus describes the B attitudes or the character of a person who's part of God's kingdom. We went through that this fall. And then beginning in verse 21, there's a shift. And Jesus describes the do attitudes or the behaviors of a person who is part of his kingdom. Jesus deals with anger and lust, divorce, lying, revenge, and hatred. And in each case explains in greater detail how a person who is part of his kingdom will surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes how they will do more than just go through the motions of meeting the external requirements of the law, but how the, rather how their obedience to God will actually flow from the inside out, from the heart, and also from a deep growing friendship with God. As we love God and God alone, and we allow Him to deal with the stuff inside, the heart issues And we allow him to change our heart. We will be transformed from the inside out. And as a result, God will use us to change the relationships we're in. Our marriages, our families, our friendships. And our sphere of influence in the world. And as this happens, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray will be answered. His kingdom will come to earth. As it is in heaven. And so, with that in mind, Jesus starts out in verse 21 with the sixth commandment. So, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read this passage together. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please come near to each one of us right now. Lord, bring focus to our minds, soften our hearts, and then, Lord, give us the courage to respond as you would have us to, for we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So let's face it. We've all been hurt by others. For where two or three are gathered, there will be problems, okay? Okay? Many of us, I'm sure, can still remember schoolmates making fun of our appearance. Some of us can remember people making fun of our clothes or our athletic ability. Others will remember the harsh words of a teacher or a coach or a sibling, a parent, a child. I hate you. I wish you were dead. You're stupid. You're worthless. I want a divorce. I wish we'd never had you. I wish you weren't my parents. Have you ever had words like that directed at you? Have you ever uttered words like that? If we're honest, we've all spoken or been on the receiving end of angry, hurtful words like this. I still remember a college professor calling me into his office and and pointing out one of my many weaknesses. That was 35 years ago, and I still remember what he said, how he said it, and where we were when he said it. Not that I hold a grudge against that judgmental codger, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) The scenarios, you know, are all different. But many of us have experienced the pain of angry, hurtful words. So what have you done with that hurt? How are you dealing with it? You know, the more I travel, the more I'm realizing how unpleasant it is to lug around more luggage than you actually need. I remember once when Gwen and I were traveling, the wheel of one of our suitcases broke. I won't say whose it was, (laughs) except it was incredibly heavy, (laughs) filled with lotions and other such useless products. I was never so happy to unload that tank on the conveyor belts and to be relieved of the burden of trying to carry that thing. Now folks, some of you are hauling around suitcases, plumb full of hurt and bitterness. What are you going to do with that burden, with that pain? How long are you going to lug it around? Well, here in Matthew 5.21, Jesus warns of three ways that our anger can lead to sin and lead, actually, to even a greater burden in our lives. You see, not all anger is sinful. We need to make, bring clarity to that right off the bat. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin, which tells us that anger, like love, is actually a God-given emotion. And that in and of itself, it isn't wrong. It's how we express our anger or deal with our anger where the problem really lies. We know Jesus, for example, was angry when God's holiness was defiled or when poor people were being exploited. He got angry and yet he did not sin because his anger was a righteous anger. It was devoid of any self-interest. When he was spit upon, When he was beaten, when he was mocked and crucified, he did not retaliate. He didn't make any threats. He said, Father, forgive them. The only time he got angry was when unjust things were being done to others. In the same way, if we love God and we see injustice, we will be angry. Not in the sense of flying into uncontrollable rage. But in the sense of wanting to do something about the injustice that we become aware of in a constructive and in a life-giving way. The way that William Wilberforce, for example, expressed his anger against the slave trade by doing something about it. All that to say that there is a righteous or a justifiable anger And then there is also a sinful anger, which is what Jesus is talking about here. You see, when we sense anger welling up within us, we need to see it as a warning light something is wrong. Maybe we're feeling attacked by the words of someone, maybe it's an injustice. We need to find out what's setting off the alarm. Here in Matthew 5.21, Jesus gives us three alarms. He describes three ways that sinful anger can get a foothold in our lives and actually escalate, possibly even to something as unspeakable as murder. First of all, anger is sinful when we suppress it for a long time. In verse 22, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. William Barclay points out that there are two main words for anger in the New Testament. One of them is thumus, and this is the anger which erupts quickly but then also dies quickly. It's what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer. I assume what happens is you erupt with some kind of something. Angry. But then it also dies down quickly. The second word for anger is orgē, which is a long-lived anger. This is the Greek word that Jesus uses in this passage. It is an anger of a person who chooses to pretend all is well, to suppress it, to push down the anger. It's an anger of a person who nurses his anger to keep it warm. An anger over which a person broods and will not let die. It's the kind of anger that Cain had toward his brother Abel in Genesis 4, 3. And in that passage, God describes Cain's anger as sin crouching at your door, desiring to have you. And it eventually did master him. And it controlled him until he murdered his own brother. Trying to suppress anger is a lot like trying to bury toxic wastes in the ground. You think the problem is gone, but months or years later, the toxins begin to leak. They leak out in the form of stomach problems, in the form of sleeping disorders, in the form of health problems. Proverbs 17.22 says, A cheerful heart is good like medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. I once heard a pastor tell the story of a woman in his church who was going through a horrendous divorce, and and, um, she was becoming incredibly bitter toward her spouse. And during the proceedings, she began to go blind in one eye. She went to numerous doctors. They ran all kinds of tests. They couldn't find anything. Finally, when she came to the end of her own resources, she decided to go to God. And after the service, she met with the pastor and kind of filled him in with what was going on and the resentment she was feeling. And after all of that, she prayed, God, please, flesh out all of my bitterness out of my life toward my husband and fill me with your love. And the pastor goes on to say that she finished the prayer, she got up, she walked out to church, she got to the parking lot, and by the time she got in her car, her sight had come back. Folks, we have no idea what we're doing when we hold on to a hurt or a grudge. Suppressed anger robs us of health and joy. It poisons our attitudes, causes us to become irritable, Bitter and cynical, which in turn causes other people to run from us. Because if we're powder kegs, people are just fearful. They just don't want to be around us. They just don't want to be around when we blow again. Resentment keeps you focused on the hurt rather than the hope and the healing that we have in Jesus. It always hurts you more than it does the person that you're angry with. I mean while you're stewing and spewing and while you're popping antacid pills your enemy's sleeping soundly in his bed. Ephesians 4:26 says, "Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry." And Jesus picks up on that basically. And he says the person who is subject to judgment is the one who chooses to suppress his anger and not deal with it and allow it to linger past the setting of the sun. Is God setting off an alarm in you with respect to long-lasting anger? A second type of anger which is sinful is not suppressing but expressing. Expressing our anger in the wrong way. Look at verse 22. Jesus gives two ways that we can express our anger in a wrong way. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Notice that the judgments are escalating. Sanhedrin was like the highest court. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You can only suppress your anger so long, eventually it will leak out. Anger in the heart initially leaks out in little sarcastic comments, and then not so little sarcastic comments. It begins to move into rude comments. And eventually it leads to lashing out directly at the person or through deliberate attempts at slandering their character and reputation behind their back. The word raka is almost untranslatable because it mostly describes a tone of voice, but essentially it means empty, and in that day it meant something like a person saying, you worthless son of a motherless goat, which is not a literal translation. To call a man raka was to call him stupid, a brainless idiot, a blockhead. It's really aimed at insulting a person's intelligence or a person's competence. On the other hand, the word fool comes from the Greek word moray, from which we get the word moron, which means to cast doubt on a person's value, on a person's moral character. This is referring to destroying a person's reputation through backstabbing or through manipulative power plays. It can also refer to a spirit of contempt for another person. I recently read about a mother who sent to Dr. James Dobson a note that her fourth-grade daughter received from one of her classmates. And as I read it, I just want you to imagine the impact it must have had on this little girl's soul. This is what was in the note. Awful Janet, you're the stinkiest girl in this whole world. I hope you die, but of course, I suppose that's impossible. I've got some ideals. Play on the road. Cut your throat. Drink poison. Get drunk. Knife yourself. Please do some of this, you big fat girl. We all hate you. I'm praying, oh please, Lord... Let Janet die. We're in need of fresh air. Did you hear me, Lord? Because if you didn't, we'll all die with her here from Wanda. How absolutely tragic. And friends, I'm told this kind of problem is rampant in our schools. And not just in our public schools. All indication is this gal was involved. She had some form of Christianity in her who wrote that note. There is no sin quite so unchristian as the sin of contempt, which comes from a pride of position or a pride of one's looks or a pride of money and possessions or of intellectual snobbery. I wonder how many of you, if you're honest, have mothballed your musical gifts, have buried your leadership talents and abilities because somewhere in your past, someone was unkind to you in their words and you believed them. Stories told of a certain rabbi who was coming from his teacher's house feeling pretty good about his goodness and his scholarship. And he passed an ill favored man. And this man gave him a greeting. The rabbi didn't return the greeting but said, You raka, how ugly you are. Are all the men from your town as ugly as you are? I think about someone saying something like that to you. How would you respond? Wouldn't you be tempted to lash back? And yet, this man calmly said this I do not know whether all the men from my town are as ugly as I am, but why not go and tell the Maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made? The point is well made. To put someone down or to allow someone to destroy the gifts, the abilities that God has given to you to inhibit you from being all that God wants you to be and the impact he wants to have through you because of the words of someone else is actually to challenge the one who created you. David reveals how God feels about us in Psalm 8. Referring to mankind, he says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good words, David, good words. Lord, help us to believe it and to live it. Now, I want you to notice in verse 22 that Jesus says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, which, of course, could refer to a fellow church member, but it's referring to someone close. He's concerned that we especially apply this to those who are closest to us. For isn't it true that while we might be patient and not fly off the handle with people that we don't know or don't know very well, we tend to be quite impatient and sometimes quite volatile with those who are closest to us. Church, we need to stop our guilt trips. We need to stop our fault finding, our name calling, our yelling our sarcasm, our blaming with those that we say we love the most. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 7, Peter says that if we don't treat our spouse with love and respect, our prayers will be hindered. And so in summary, what Jesus is saying in these descriptions of sinful anger is that a person who suppresses his anger or nurses his anger, speaks disrespectfully to others, or destroys another person's character, may never have committed an actual murder, but he is a murderer at heart. Now I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying that anger is murder. He's not saying that sarcasm or insulting is murder murder. Yes, as John Stott says, anger and insults are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone who is in the way. And yes, sarcasm and insults are forms of character assassination, but nevertheless, Jesus is not making a one-to-one correspondence between anger and murder. Let me put it this way, I would much prefer that you be angry with me rather than murdering me. Just to bring the clarity to the difference, okay? Don't like either, but if I have to choose. Jesus is drawing out the intent behind this command. He's telling us that murder doesn't start with your hands, murder doesn't start with a knife or a gun. No, murder starts in your heart. It begins when you suppress or you nurse your anger. And it spills out in sarcastic words and insulting words. Jesus is also saying that nursing anger, publicly insulting someone, demeaning someone's reputation and character is just as displeasing to God and damaging to relationships and deserving of judgment as murder is. In fact, in verse 22, he warns that if you allow sinful anger to fester in your life in the way that we've talked about, you shall be in danger of hell fire. And he's saying here, if you have hatred in your heart like this, and you refuse to let it go, it shows that you have never truly understood or embraced the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, and therefore, you're in danger of your soul going to hell. This is serious business. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He goes on to teach us how to resolve our anger. Beginning in verse 23, he gives two examples of how to deal with anger. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. He's really talking about worship here. So have you ever been at home alone and you've been worshiping God, perhaps talking to God th- through prayer or reading the scriptures, and out of the blue you're reminded of an individual that you have an issue with? Or have you ever been in, in a context like this and you've been worshiping God and you, you know your hands are up and everything and all of a sudden the image of that person that you have a conflict with comes to your mind and does a real number on your worship. Now, some people think that when that happens, oh, that's the enemy trying to mess up your worship. But I like what what Daryl Johnson says about this. He says, The Lord who went to the cross to reconcile us with God and with one another. He says, This Lord... Is actually trying to get our attention when that happens. To face something that we don't want to face. In verse 24, Jesus goes from a um, worship example, a religious example, so to speak, to a secular example. And he says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. And the the implication here is is that you're probably guilty. You owe this person money, or you're behind in payments or something. He's taking you to court. And what Jesus is saying here is, settle the matter quickly. Don't drag it out. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Which is very difficult, because how do you pay when you're in jail? How do you make money to pay? Now, both of these examples, Jesus uses them to give us the one major key to deal with our anger. And he's simply saying this, and you may want to write this down. He is saying, get right And do it now. Get right and do it now. Whatever issue you have with someone, as much as it depends on you, says Paul in Romans 12, do all you can to deal with your anger and hurt in a godly, humble way and do it quickly. Don't let it fester. Don't let it go on and on. John Claypool He tells the story of two identical twin boys who paid the price of not acting immediately. From the earliest stages of their life, they were very close. They dressed alike, they did all the activities together. Neither of them married. When their father died, they took over the family business and their relationship was held up in the city as a model of creative collaboration. One morning, a customer came in to the store and and made a small purchase. The brother who waited on that particular customer took the dollar bill that he'd received for the product and he put it on top of the cash register, wanting to put put it away later because he wanted to escort this customer to the door and wish this person a good day. Sometime later, he remembered he left the dollar bill on the cash register, and so he went over to the cash register only to find that the dollar was gone. And so he asked his twin brother whether he had seen the dollar bill, and his brother said, no, he hadn't. And he said, that's funny. He said, I I distinctly remember putting the bill on the register, and, and no one has been in the store since then. Now, had that matter been dealt with right then and there, had the two brothers stopped and just drilled down enough to get the issues out and settle the matter, that would have been the end of it. But you see, that didn't happen. The one twin brother began to stew over this, began to wonder what happened. You need to remember that a dollar bill back then, the time this story took place, was probably the equivalent of $10, $20 now. And so he's stewing over this. Hour later, this time with a notable hint of suspicion in his voice, he asks his brother again, are you sure you didn't see the dollar bill on the cash register? And the other brother picked up his note of accusation, and he flared back in defensive anger. And from that moment on, a chasm began to grow between them. And over time... They would accuse the other of something and the other would counter back until things got so bad it dissolved the partnership and they built a partition right down the middle of their story. This side is mine, that side is yours. It even spilled over into the community as each tried to enlist others in defense of themselves. Then one day, a car with an out-of-state license plate pulled up in front of the store. A well-dressed man got out of the car and went into one side of the store, approached one of the twins and asked him how long he'd been working there. And the twin informed him he was the owner. He'd been working for over 20 years. And the man said, well, then you are the one that I need to talk to. He said, you see, about 20 years ago, I was out of work. I was drifting from place to place. I happened one day to get out of a train boxcar right in this town. I hadn't eaten for three days and had no money for food, and I walked past your store and I happened to see a dollar bill on your cash register. No one was in sight, and even though I'd never stolen anything before, I was so hungry I gave in to the temptation, and so I slipped into your store undetected and took the dollar bill. That act has weighed on my conscience ever since, and I have returned to make amends and to pay whatever I owe you. The stranger was surprised when the older man in front of him began to shake his head in dismay and began to weep. Still weeping, he took this man by the hand and went over to the other side of the store and asked him to tell his brother, the story that he had just told him, which he proceeded to do. And when he was done, this man was surprised even more to witness two older men who looked remarkably alike, both weeping uncontrollably. Twenty years of recrimination and hostility over nothing. Because it wasn't dealt with. Friends, that's why Jesus says here in verse 25, settle matters quickly. People in my kingdom will settle matters quickly. And why Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. As far as it depends on you, do all you can to settle matters quickly, or else your heart will become a poison pool of orge unresolved anger. So what might that look like practically? Well, first of all, surrender your pride to God. It all starts right here. The reason there's so much anger and relational conflict in this world is because there's just too much pride going on inside of us. We're still too much in love with ourselves and wanting to have our own way. The Apostle James put it this way, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word desires in this verse comes from the same Greek word from which we get the word hedonism. Hedonism means to have a strong desire to satisfy ourselves. It's all about me and my happiness. In other words, we are at the center of our universe, not God. And as a result, you see, what happens is the world orbits around us, and we look at our parents and our siblings and our friends and our spouses, even our children. And we look to them to provide our deep-seated deep needs within. And when they don't come through, we get angry. And yet God never intended for the world to revolve around us or our ego. Life isn't about us. It's about God. He's the center of the universe. He's the one who created us. And until he's the center of our lives, we will never be free from all of the striving and the emptiness and the subtle and sometimes the not so subtle competition that goes on between us and all of the anger and the envy and the relational conflict that tends to accompany it. In verse 6, James says, God opposes the proud. You don't want to have God opposing you. But he gives grace to the humble. So how do we go there? Well, he gives us the answer next. Submit yourselves then to God. Put him at the center of your universe. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You don't need to lift yourself up. You don't need to defend yourself. He will lift you up. In his own time, in his own way. James essentially says, you don't have the power in yourself to find victory over anger and dissension. So submit your life to Christ and allow him to live his life through you. You see, as I submit my life to God, And I embrace his love for me and I rest in his plan and his purpose for me. My thoughts will increasingly be renewed by his thoughts. In the words of Paul in Romans 12, I will be transformed by the renewing of my mind. When I realize that God is God and that I'm not, that I am perfectly loved by my creator God, I am freed to think of others rather than myself. I don't have to prove myself anymore. I don't have to compete and win to reinforce my feelings of self-worth. My worth is no longer dependent on what I can do or on what I have or how famous I am. No, my worth is based upon who I am in Jesus Christ. My soul is full of... I now have true joy, peace and love because I am a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And folks, this truth produces a godly peace and security within, frees me to open my heart and my hands to other people to be a servant to others without expecting others to return the favor. I'm able to love because I know what it means to be loved by God Himself. And as I begin to understand the abuse and the scorn and the pain and the indignities that Jesus suffered on the cross out of His love for me, I am increasingly impelled to extend His grace and His gentleness, His patience, His forgiveness to the friend who hurt me, to the spouse who betrayed me, to the pastor who failed me, to the child who disobeyed me, to the parent who hurt and disappointed me. If God extended such amazing grace and forgiveness to me on the cross, how can I not extend that same amazing grace and forgiveness to others? On the other hand, if I won't forgive, if I continue seething in anger, resentment, and bitterness, if I continue to hold on a grudge against someone, it's a clear indication that I'm still at the center of my universe and that I need to surrender my life to God who's made forgiveness possible by His grace. This is the most fundamental foundational step It begins in the heart and this pride issue. Secondly, spend time alone with the Lord. Share your heart and your pain with Him. Ask Him to show you what's behind your anger. Is it pride? Is it the need to get even, to make that person pay? Is it a lack of trusted God? Is it a need to control things? Is it fear? Many times anger is related to fear, you know. Is it fear of letting someone down, of losing what you have, of losing someone you love? Is it fear of letting go of trusting your life, your family, your future to God? Take some time to stop, to be alone with God. Ask Him by His Spirit to show you what's really behind your anger. And as He begins to reveal it to you, confess to Him your pride, your fear, your insecurity, whatever it is, anything that isn't true according to His Word and isn't His best, His will for you. Thirdly, take the initiative and approach the person who has hurt you or the person that you're in odds with. Tell the Lord that you're afraid to be the first one to reach out. And by the way, it doesn't matter who's responsible. As I understand the scriptures, both parties are responsible to reconcile with one another. Doesn't matter who goes first. Tell the Lord that you're afraid. That you're afraid of the person's anger and how they're going to respond. Tell them you're afraid of further rejection. Tell them you're afraid of being humiliated even more. But having done that, go. And if you're humiliated, you're humiliated. Remember, he who is on the floor cannot fall. Is your pride where it needs to be? Is it surrender to the Lord? If the person doesn't accept your apology, if the person wants to continue the war, that's his decision. You've done what you need to do. If you have something good to say, if you want to encourage someone, you can write a letter, you can send an email. But if you have something hard to say, don't send an email. Don't write a letter. You face that person. You go face to face with them. You be a man. You be a woman. Don't hide behind email. Go face to face. Go tactfully. Go humbly. Go with the intent of restoring the relationship, not hammering that person to the ground with condemnation. Don't go there determined to prove that you're right and this person's wrong. Put yourself in this person's shoes and try to understand what they're going through in their life and how that may have played a role in what they did or said. Understanding is the first step toward compassion and forgiveness. Be as calm as you can be. Don't attack. Just explain. Take responsibility for for your own actions. Be ready to listen. The intent is not to accuse the person's behavior. It's not to excuse your behavior or their behavior, but to help you to love them and to treat them as if they'd never sinned in the first place. Someone once said, hurt people hurt people. And how true that is. Often, When someone is hurting, it's because they themselves are hurting. There's something going on in their own life. So surrender your pride to God by taking the initiative. Next, bless those who have hurt you or those you've been in conflict with. A sign that we have truly surrendered our pride and our lives to God is to release our resentment toward that individual And to actually seek to bless them. To refuse to do to them what they have done to us. To bless them is to speak well of them. It is actually to celebrate with them when they have cause to celebrate. It is to encourage them. And if you can't speak well of them with integrity, then don't say anything at all. We bless them when we encourage them. We bless them when we pray for them. A youth pastor in the United States, I just read this uh, the other night. He told about a youth leader in his church that he, that he was serving in who was very critical of him. Constantly attacking him. And who over time grew to resent him because the youth were coming to him instead of to her. And she'd had a long history with some of these youth. And he talks about the fact that things began to escalate. There was noticeable anger in this woman. But then he says, I noticed that there was anger in me too. I was angry with her. I despised seeing her at church. I wanted nothing to do with her. That's when my pastor stepped in and gave me an assignment. My assignment was to pray for her. Not for her to change necessarily, but that God would bless her and her family, and that he would work in her life for good. I don't know if the prayers worked for her, but they certainly impacted me. I was soon losing my grip on the anger that was inside of me. I realized that while I may, may be right about the issues, I was wrong about my anger. Only then was I able to ask God for God's forgiveness. He goes on to say, I couldn't do it on my own. I was only, it was only through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that I was able to work through this issue. Anger still crops up in my life, he says. I find myself having to let go of anger at others, but the more I practice letting go, the more I'm able to let it go. Friend, is there any sinful anger in your heart towards someone? Isn't it time to let that anger go? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You know, church, there is no miracle like the miracle of grace and forgiveness. I don't believe there's a person in this place, regardless of how tough and calloused on the outside, who deep down inside doesn't long to forgive and to be forgiven but it won't happen until we're prepared to break the cycle of ungrace and do what seems so totally unfair and that is to forgive and so we have a choice to make we can coddle our hurt until it turns to hate to rage and destroys us from the inside out not to mention others around us or we can forgive even as we have been forgiven. And when we do, we will be set free and the kingdom of God will come to earth as it is in heaven. Nothing illustrates the message this morning more powerfully than what Jesus did for us. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, we read this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In this passage, Paul gives us instructions of how to prepare ourselves as we partake of the Lord's Supper. First of all, we're to look back for the purpose of remembering and giving thanks. Jesus said, whenever you eat of the bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Remember why Jesus died. He died for you and for me, for our sins. He was our substitute on the cross. As you take of the bread and you drink of the vine, give thanks to God for Christ's sacrifice on the cross for you. And in light of his sacrifice, offer yourself as a living sacrifice back to God. We're to look back, but we're also to look ahead. To rejoice for the time when Jesus will return. Jesus says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is coming again, friends. As you take of the elements, remind yourself that the Lord may come back at any time and resolve to live each day as if it were your last. We're to look back. We're to look ahead. We're to look within. Asking God to reveal anything, a sinful attitude, a behavior, a grudge, a resentment that needs to be dealt with, and to confess it to the Lord. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And then finally, we're to look around. Not to judge or criticize others, but actually to, to... express thanks to God for others, their lives, their gifts, their commitment to God. Looking around may involve determining to seek out someone that you know that you've hurt and humbly and sincerely apologizing. So I'm going to just give you a few moments right now to look back with gratefulness, to look ahead with anticipation to Christ's return, to look within with humility and confession, and to look around with love and thanks for the church of Jesus and the resolve to reconcile with others. Just do that right now. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your faithfulness, for saving us from our sins through Jesus Christ and loving us despite our failures and our rebellion. Our hearts are exposed to you. You know all of our desires, our secrets, our sins, our acts of disobedience. We confess things that we have said and left unsaid, done and left undone. And we thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that is ours through your shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine that we receiving them may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. and Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptations, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his favor upon you, and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.